Welcome to the Power and Utility Surge, PwC's continuing podcast series on power and utilities taxation. I'm Sal Montabano. I'm the power and utilities tax leader for PwC. And I'm welcoming uh, special guests who made an appearance on the first podcast, Scott McCandless in our tax policy group. Hi, Scott. Hi, Sal. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for uh, being back. Uh, you know, you're still not Dua Lipa, but uh, you've been asked back twice now, so you must be doing <laughs> something right. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Appreciate it. So uh, with the election and some of the smoke clearing from the election uh, now, at least we think some of the smoke is clearing, uh, we thought it'd make sense to, to bring Scott back and, and cover a few topics as they impact the power and utilities industry. So the first thing we'll maybe start with is the short term. So we have a lame duck session coming up here. Scott, any prospects for any kind of uh, legislation here in the lame duck? Yeah, great question, Sal, and good to focus on the lame duck. I think we've all spent so much attention on the election and what it might mean for 2021 that it's easy to overlook the fact that Congress still has some work ahead of it. So it's mainly driven by the fact that they have a December 11th deadline by which they have to fund the government again in order to prevent another government shutdown. That seems extremely unlikely. They will do that. But because Congress has to come back to do that, it presents the opportunity for them to maybe attack some, uh, some other potential issues. The largest on their agenda would be some kind of COVID relief package. They were negotiating a potential phase four all through the summer into the fall and certainly fell apart probably as part of the uh, run-up to the elections, just couldn't quite get something done. But now that we're past the elections, uh, and frankly, because we're seeing a bit of a spike in, in health-related COVID cases, uh, and we're certainly not health experts here, so I don't want to dive into that too much, but that's the kind of thing that will put the type of pressure on Congress that could allow them to bridge a bipartisan divide. So it is possible, uh, and I'm becoming slightly more optimistic that a COVID relief package could in fact get done in December, um, and, and maybe we would see some other things go along with it. The thing that we're all focused on in terms of what could ride with it would be extenders, because there are still more than 30 extenders uh, on the tax side that are due to expire at the end of the year. And we've seen this story before where they expire and then at some point in the uh, subsequent year have to be renewed, usually retroactively. We could see that again, but it's possible just, just narrowly that maybe extenders could get tacked on to something like a COVID relief or a government funding bill, uh, depending on how they go forward. Uh, so there's at least some optimism there. I will say this though, there is no chance that extenders moves and COVID relief doesn't. In other words, they're not going to pass business related tax relief and not pass some kind of individual related COVID relief. So that can't happen, but the opposite could be true. If they pass COVID related relief, then maybe the business extenders could ride along with it. Yeah, that, that makes sense, Scott. And I know that the COVID relief certainly would seem to be at the top of any agenda, assuming anything can get done in the lame duck session. Right. So, yeah, that's right. So like with I said, that, oh, oh. Go ahead. No, I, no I, like I said, I, I'd still in a little bit under 50% that a COVID relief bill gets done, but I'm, I'm closer than I was uh, you know, uh, maybe just a couple of short weeks ago. It, it's starting to, to look more optimistic, and unfortunately, that's partly due to the health situation looking a little grimmer. Right. Understood. Understood. So one of the things I know we've talked at length about and, and spent a lot of time on the first podcast covering was the prospect for tax reform and, and specifically a tax rate increase. 
with a potential Biden administration. Maybe if you can jump into that with a president-elect Biden and what tax reform prospects would look like next year once he takes office. Sure, great question. And I have to say, I'm becoming a little bit more bearish on the idea of uh, significant tax changes occurring in 2021. Um, that's partly because uh, of the closeness of the election outcomes in Congress. Uh, in the House, the Democrats uh, lost several seats. In fact, their majority, which they will hold on to, will be uh, extremely narrow and the narrowest that the Democrats have had really in the post-World War II era. Uh, it, it's extremely narrow, gives them very little room for, uh, for losing a few votes. It looks like Speaker Pelosi will be uh, likely to be reelected Speaker, but, but um, it's going to be a very close-run thing in the House. And the Senate, too, remains extremely close. Uh, as we sit here today, we're still waiting for the results of a January 5th Georgia Senate runoff to determine control of, of the Senate. The Republicans have 50 seats. The Democrats have 48. So those two outstanding races in Georgia will determine whether the Republicans have 52 or 51 seats. Or if they both go to the Democrats, you'd have a 50-50 Senate, in which case ties are broken by the sitting vice president, which looks like it'll be you know, Vice President-elect Harris, uh, who not only can break ties, but by virtue of her presence as the tie-breaking uh, role that she would have to play, would give control of the Senate to the Democrats. In other words, they would also control uh, the committee chairs, which would be important to note from a policy perspective. But again, given how incredibly narrow these margins are, uh, it's going to be very difficult for them to pass anything through Congress. So you really have to get into the weeds of Senate parliamentary procedure, I'm afraid, before you can really see uh, what the art of the doable might look like. Remember that you typically need 60 votes to do anything in the Senate, even if the Democrats have 50 and can hold all 50 together on any given vote, uh, you would still need 10 Republicans to cross the aisle at least, and that seems unlikely. So might they consider ending the filibuster? That's something they talked about during the run-up to the election. Um, and it looks like they, there might be some interest in doing that, but they might not be able to, because at least one Democratic senator has come forth and said that he would oppose that um, ending of the filibuster. And if you only have 50 seats, you can't afford to lose even one on that kind of vote. So it looks like the filibuster may stay in place. And then the next opportunity to try to move uh, some kind of tax legislation, you would have to consider reconciliation. Now, budget reconciliation uh, is the tool that was used to pass TCJA in the first place. It's been used in other uh, large-scale bills, like on the Affordable Care Act from years ago and others before that. And that does have the benefit of reducing the vote, the vote threshold in the Senate from 60 to a mere 51. So if uh, Democrats could use reconciliation, then they could do it, even if they only have uh, you know, 50 plus the vice president. However, in order to set up a reconciliation vote, you have to first agree on a budget. And that means the House and Senate Democrats would have to pass a budget, and that would require, given their incredibly narrow margins, almost unanimity among all the Democrats. And that is not easy to do. Last year, the Democrats in the House, just in the House, where they had a more significant margin then than they will in 2021, were unable to pass a budget just because of internal disagreements over all the various elements that a budget may contain. Now, if they um, see that reconciliation is the only path by which they could affect changes to significant tax policy, then maybe they could find a way to bridge some of their own internal differences. But unless they can get near unanimity to agree on a budget, then they can't actually activate the budget reconciliation tool. So again, I don't mean to get too into the weeds of parliamentary procedure here, but that procedure will in fact be extremely determinative 
of outcome possibilities here. So like I said, I'm becoming a little more bearish on the prospects for significant tax changes uh, in the new year. That's going to put a lot of pressure on the ability of uh, Biden to negotiate with the folks in Congress. And I, I can get to that more in a minute if you'd like to touch on that. Um, and maybe more pressure on a possible Biden administration's regulatory outlook. And we'll have to see uh, where it might go with that. But uh, I think those are the only ways they could really get it through. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense, Scott. And we all kind of await the uh, special elections in Georgia. I think the one underrated thing may be as well, the narrowing majority for the Democrats in the House, which may put some pressure on any kind of legislative prospects as well. That's exactly right. Yep, it, it's usually assumed that the House, being a majoritarian body like it is, could pass whatever it wants. Uh, and that would typically true, but be true, but when you can only afford to lose a handful of votes, you're only going to have a majority of maybe five or six seats. Um, that's a very close-run thing. That's a heck of a cat-herding exercise in order to try to line them up and, uh, and get them to push the policy that you want to see delivered. Uh, so that's going to be hard enough in the, in the House, let alone the Senate, where it's even more difficult because of the filibuster rule. Yep. Thanks, Scott. So you alluded to it. So if there's not a lot of prospect for tax reform from a legislative standpoint, would you expect to see workings around the edges from a regulatory standpoint under a Biden administration? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of focus will turn. It might not be immediate uh, for a couple of reasons. One is they would have to get a new Treasury Secretary confirmed and get that operation stood up and running. That takes a little bit of time. Uh, and then the second is that Treasury doesn't tend to be a place where a lot of you know, partisan outcomes are, are derived. Uh, they tend to be, you know, kind of professionals, professionals, you know, the pros, pros in there. Uh, and yes, of course, they'll have a democratic perspective and will um, you know, direct policy towards outcomes consistent with that philosophy. But um, they, they don't tend to be um, you know, kind of uh, pushing regulatory agendas just for the sake of achieving a desired outcome. Rather, they would have to go through notice and comment process. Uh, and remember that if they are uh, considering affecting existing regulations, you know, the regs that have gone final with regard to TCJA, that has an even higher threshold of scrutiny uh, if it were ever challenged uh, from a legal perspective. Judges um, uh, usually require an administration to have a pretty good reason to go back and rewrite a regulatory outcome um, if it's just being done for partisan reasons. They would have to have some, some really sound rationale to change anything. But that said, it was clear during the campaign that the Biden administration was taking a fairly dim view of guilty and wanted to put further restrictions on the guilty provisions from an international perspective. And it's possible that could lead them to maybe a reconsideration of the high tax exception within guilty. I think that might be one area that could potentially get some attention at some point later in 2021. But I think that the, the regulatory agenda in, in Treasury won't be able to achieve all of the goals that they had during the campaign, such as changing rates. It just might uh, create a more complicated environment depending on where their outcomes are. I frankly think it's in other areas besides Treasury and besides tax where you might see a wider latitude in terms of regulatory changes from a Biden administration, such as on the environment. That makes sense, Scott. So it sounds like a lot of uncertainty coming up with respect to what actually can get done, uh, which mm -hmm. may not be all that different from where we've been over the last uh, several years. That's right. uh, turning, turning specifically, I guess, to this industry and the power and utilities, I know there's a lot of interest with regard to renewables 
and possibly even general business credit. So on the renewable side, we're kind of in the phase down period from a solar and wind standpoint. And there was a lot of talk last year about possibly making general business credit carry forwards refundable. Um, and kind of those two kind of work hand in hand because the renewables uh, create credits. Those credits are general business credits. And to the extent you don't have the tax appetite to use those immediately, uh, then they become carry forwards. So there's not only a possibility of general business credit refundability for prior credits, but also there's talk of possibly making renewables refundable on a going forward basis. Uh, so maybe we'll start with, you know, what are the prospects for extending those renewables credits? Sure, I think that they could be pretty good. I've already heard uh, some chatter that the uh, Biden administration already is thinking about a multi-year extension uh, um, and really beefing up uh, renewables credits, whether that's solar and wind, expanding to fuels, maybe expanding to batteries, uh, that they have a pretty aggressive agenda. And if they can't get something done through Congress, then they might try to create some mandates through the environmental regulatory structure that would uh, require or at least incentivize a much heavier reliance on those kinds of energy tools. So I think either way, that's going to be an area that is very ripe for activity in a Biden administration. Um, so I, I definitely see that moving. Uh, with specific regard to the GBC or general business credit idea, that was first proposed over the summer as a uh, possible inclusion in COVID relief legislation as a way to try to provide greater business liquidity. And I think that that's exactly where you might see it resurface. You know, rather than part of a tax reform conversation or a tax hike conversation, it might be part of a COVID relief package. And certainly the Democrats, if they do in fact get the two Georgia Senate seats and have control of government, are contemplating a fairly large and quite robust COVID relief package. So you could see that resurface. And the, the attractiveness of the GBC proposal is that it is so bipartisan. Uh, everybody's favorite credits are included in there. It discriminates against none of them. Uh, the research credit is probably the biggest piece, but there are also a variety of other preference items uh, really uh, that are attractive to both sides of the aisle that give it that non-discriminatory, broad bipartisan appeal and might be the kind of thing that could be included. The one caveat I have about any business liquidity provision potentially being included in a COVID relief package is what happened with the net operating loss provision, uh, the expansion of the NOLs that was included in the CARES Act, the phase three of COVID relief. Uh, that's typically an innocuous, non-controversial provision that both Democrats and Republicans have used in the past as a way to provide uh, you know, tax stimulus, if you will. Uh, but this time it took a bit of a black eye over the summer and was accused or characterized as, or characterized, I suppose I should say, as being a giveaway to big business. And when something as relatively innocuous as an NOL expansion during a downturn can receive that kind of negative attention, makes me a little bit leery about any of the tax proposals potentially riding along with COVID relief. I'm hoping that that was just something that uh, was done in a pre-election environment where they thought maybe they could gain some political points from that kind of characterization and that maybe that will fade. So hopefully the GBCs and some of the other you know, uh, business-friendly tax provisions to try to help uh, through a continuingly soft economy in early 2021 will be on the table as part of COVID relief. Yeah, so it sounds like there may be some uh, room for compromise either on the GBC credit refundability or and or on the renewable credit extension front. Uh, mm -hmm. And there may be areas where both uh, parties can line that up. Yeah, I totally agree. I think one thing that might be 
a little underestimated here is just the strength of personalities and relationships, uh, which obviously always matter in anything, politics or business or life. But uh, in this particular scenario that we're looking at in 2021, the relationship between Biden and McConnell, you know, the president-elect and, and the um, majority leader of the Senate, at least still majority leader, it depends whether they'll have a majority based on those Georgia races, of course. But even if not, that relationship, even if the Democrats control the Senate, that relationship between Biden and McConnell is very strong and is the kind of thing that would allow room for negotiation. And to kind of circle all the way back to that conversation we had about tax changes in general and how I was a little bearish on it, I could see a window where maybe they negotiate a, a solution. Maybe the Republicans you know, want to get fixed, you know, the 163 uh, interest deduction limitation that will get worse you know, in 2022 when the DA goes away, the depreciation and amortization. Maybe they want to fix the research expense that becomes capitalized and amortized. Maybe they want to fix a little longer-term problem with expensing, which ratchets down from 100% to 80% and so forth uh, in 2023 and so on. Uh, maybe there are some asks there on both sides where they could find a middle ground uh, that would not really provide enough leverage for really radical uh, changes to the tax code. So we're not talking about a 28% rate and things like that. But that might be the leverage or the pivot point around which some negotiations could turn. And maybe that's where you see renewables getting plussed up. Maybe it's part of an infrastructure package that both sides have long said they want. It's just a matter of uh, trying to find some common ground. That might be the way in which they find common ground, and that relationship between Biden and McConnell should not be underestimated in terms of an ability to get to a deal. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned the possible change to the limitation on interest deductibility in 163J and possibly expanding the inclusion of depreciation and amortization to adjusted taxable income, as well as the extension to bonus depreciation from a a regulated utility perspective, generally they're not subject to the interest limitation, but they also don't get bonus depreciation. So it'll be interesting to see if there's movement in either of those two provisions, if there's any kind of change to the utility paradigm, uh, the exclusion from 163J and 168K and, and how that works its way through the system going forward. Mm -hmm. So with that, maybe I'll, I'll wrap it up with one more question, kind of outside tax to some degree. But, you know, we mentioned regulatory uh, initiatives that a President Biden may undertake, either from a tax standpoint or otherwise. And you mentioned that we may see more of that on the environmental side and not necessarily on the tax side. But maybe if you could elaborate on that a little bit of what you might expect, uh, since that would impact certainly this industry. Sure, and I think we will see a very uh, robust set of activity from the Biden administration in the environmental space. I think they would consider bringing back the Clean Power Plan, or CPP, that uh, the Obama administration had put on the table, and the Trump administration essentially uh, nixed, at least while they were in office. Um, that could come back. Uh, you might see some activity to uh, revoke maybe the pipeline for, the, for Keystone. Um, that was something that had been... Uh, held up during the Obama years, and the Trump administration approved it. Maybe they undo that and kind of go back to the, to the Obama administration era stance on the Keystone. And similarly, they've talked a lot um, and, and put fracking in a negative light. Uh, they could probably take the action through executive order of banning or limiting fracking on public lands and maybe go further than that. But I think the public lands would be a, a pretty sound toe in the water from a legal standpoint that might withstand scrutiny or uh, from a court. 
um, and that's maybe where they go. I, and I think that those are the kinds of things that will um, they will want to do, uh, partly because they truly believe in them, but also partly to give some wins to the more progressive side of the, the Democratic caucus, if you will, uh, which I think that progressive caucus is going to feel a little bit frustrated, given how incredibly narrow some of the margins are in the House and Senate, as we discussed, given how difficult that will make it to achieve some of their policy priorities, I think they're going to feel a little frustrated. And I think they're going to be turning to the administration to find ways to act without needing congressional approval in order to get some wins uh, in, on their side of the ledger. So and I, I think the environmental space is one where they will be very active. Yes, Scott, sometimes it's hard to figure out what may be campaign posturing and things that get thrown out there while you're campaigning versus mm -hmm. what you're actually going to do once you're in office. And I guess uh, uh, the rubber hit the road here pretty soon. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's a great point. And frankly, I'm not sure a lot of what the Biden team was saying during the campaign was posturing. I think they probably would have liked to have done those things, but reality has intervened and they don't they didn't get quite the the blue wave, or at least the scope of the blue wave um, that they were perhaps hoping for, and that has limited, I think, the uh, the breadth or latitude of policy options uh, that they have before them. That makes sense. That that appears to be where we are. With mm -hmm. that, uh, I think we'll wrap up this podcast, and I want to thank Scott for his insights on the election and the prospects for future legislation. And with that, uh, until the next podcast, bid everybody goodbye. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.